Okay, questions on Genesis chapter 8. Genesis 8 questions. So this yes. is the, uh, the last verse of chapter 8. Does that mean God won't destroy the earth with climate change? Does, the last verse, does chapter 8, 22 mean that God will not destroy the earth with climate change? No, it, it, correct. It means it's not going to be man-made. It's not going to be man-caused. We're not going to be able to destroy the earth the way people say so. It's not going to happen. Would it be destroying the fire like, say, really extreme global warming? Yes. Now, now speaking to that, that's not an irrelevant question because... People do say that we have the ability to destroy the earth. They say that, and they say they're not going to be able to live uh, for the next uh, 30, 40 years. They may never see retirement, they say. The youngsters today are saying that. The 20, 30-year-olds are saying that they won't be able to have a happy, peaceful retirement because the earth won't exist at that time. In fact, I was walking at a, through a college in, in the hallway of a college from one place to the next and I saw a, or heard a young man talking to his friends. He looked like this was Navarro College in Midlothian, Texas. Okay, And in Midlothian, a, a town of about 30-40,000 people, this man, he spoke as though he was from that area and probably from a smaller town than Midlothian. And this is what he's telling his friend, the friends. Um, we, we in the United States, we pollute the earth so much that we're going to have this and that problem. He was explaining the problems we're going to have because of air pollution and general pollution, how we pollute the earth, and it's unsustainable. We're not going to be able to do it. And this man, the way he talked and the way he looked, he was like he was from a town of maybe 500 or 1,000 people somewhere nearby. That's the way he looked and talked. And so the colleges are brainwashing the students to think this way, that it's actually going to be possible. And this also reminds me of how even people within Christianity take verses out of context. One time, I was only about 20 years old. I walked into a garden store. I walked into a garden store in Seattle, Washington, and they had aprons. And on the apron, it said the following... Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Revelation 7, verse 3. So I was curious. What does that verse say? Really? It says that? And I went home. I opened up my Bible and I read the context. Revelation 7, 1 to 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea, or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, or the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. What's this mean? It means that God will commission the angels to destroy the earth, but he's first going to seal his bondservants. That's what it's saying. It's not talking about man-made global warming, global cooling, or climate change. It's not saying man is doing this or man could do this. It's not even addressing man. It's addressing the angels. 
that there is going to be a time when God destroys the earth. And so this is brought up because of satanic ideologies. Satanic ideologies masquerading as good philosophy, good science, good religion, good Christianity, that that's what man does or could do to destroy the planet. But it's not possible. It's not possible. And what they do is they, they put upside down, they put upside down the biblical priorities. That is, God, He is sovereignly in control of His universe. That's number one. He will destroy it when He wants to destroy it. Right. Not us. Number two, humans are more valuable than animals. Humans are more valuable than animals. Plants and animals are not superior to humans. We are superior to them. But this ideology turns that upside down and puts more credibility and more honor and protection on plants than on people. On animals more than people, which is wrong. They even say that the killing of animals is murder. They call it murder. That's wrong. That's evil to say that. To say those very things. Which we saw in 1 Timothy 4, 1-5. They, they forbid marriage and ad, advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Right? So, they say these kinds of things to turn it upside down. And they put humans on the lowest level. Um, also, the United States is only about 5% of the world's population, and yet they claim that we are polluting the earth when they won't show you pictures of how polluted it is in other nations, like in China or in India and many other countries, how polluted it actually is. That is litter pollution, water pollution, air pollution, um, smog, uh, traffic, all of this. It's much, much worse. Much, much worse. Just check the internet. Just check pollution India, pollution China, and you will see many, many pictures. Pictures that you will never see in the United States, or rarely in the United States. Maybe in certain places of Chicago, and certain places of Los Angeles and New York City, you might see that. But you won't see it all across the countryside. You won't see it all across the cities in the United States. Only where the ideology, the false ideology of climate change pervades, there you will see it. Masquerading as good and when actually it's destructive. They don't care about the environment. They want to destroy the environment. And they claim that we're doing that. No, that's not biblical. So Genesis 8.22 is one such place where we can go to say, God is in control of this. We're not going to be able to Undermine it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, could you? Um, I think that part of that um, you talk about uh, satanic. Um, these are satanic uh, ideas. These are deceptions and lies. Um, and I think some of the insidiousness of it is to totally obscure why it is that we as human beings should be concerned about the way that we are stewarding God's creation, right? So like if, um, does it 
it doesn't matter how we steward the creation that God has told us to exercise dominion in. God has put us in charge of the created order of the animals and the plants. We have dominion. We have authority over them. This is true. It doesn't matter then what we do with them. Or can I just dump my car oil on my car lawn? Oh, okay. Does, and does it does it matter to God the way that we steward the creation? Does it matter how we steward the creation? And the answer is yes. Now, those who oppose the Bible, they will project it as though we're going to dump a bunch of oil on our front yard or right there by our front door. And they even have pictures of cavemen who don't know what they're doing. They walk around grunting and groaning and then throw their garbage right there outside of their front door and there's a big garbage heap. Okay. That that's the way people are generally and you need somebody to to tell them not to do that. And that's what we would do. No. We're not about doing that. Nobody who believes the Bible like this is actually saying, don't keep up your yard, don't keep up your house, uh, mistreat your animals, torture your, your animals, and things like that. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. Proverbs 12.10 says, A righteous man has regard for the life of his beast. But the compassion of the wicked is cruel. A righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, but the compassion of the wicked is cruel. Furthermore, we could see in Exodus chapter 23, Exodus 23 verses 4 and 5. 23, 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one of, uh, who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. If we see a donkey that is standing there under a heavy load, it's been ignored, neglected, something has happened, you see that helpless animal, help the animal. Help the animal. Furthermore, we have Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 19. 20, 19. When you besiege a city a long time to make war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an axe against them, for you may eat from them, and you shall not cut them down. For is the tree of the field a man that it should be besieged by you? Only the trees which you know are not fruit trees, you shall destroy and cut down, that you may construct siege works against the city that is making war with you until it falls. Okay, so if we're doing this, if we understand these passages, the Bible is telling us there is a proper way to treat the animals. Even animals for sacrifice were supposed to be killed in a certain way so as not to torture them. Right? right. right? So... The Bible teaches us that those kinds of things. I, I think it's basically a straw man argument against the biblical view of the environment to say, well, you just want to dump a bunch of oil on your yard. You just want to torture animals. You just want to cut down all the trees. You just want pavement and cement everywhere. When, when that's actually not the case. Yeah. I, that, it was just one of those things I've heard as some people within the church who have um, 
kind of a, a bunker eschatology. We're just going to hide out until we get out. Um, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do because it's all going to burn up anyway. Uh, and that doesn't sound like the way that God instructed His people, uh, you know, to live. And and there's you know there's real time uh, problems. Uh, I, have, I have a family in my church that they're on well water, but not for long, because some company, you know, just poured a bunch of chemicals all off. And so it's seeping, seeping through this whole area, and everyone who's on well water is having to get off, and some people got sick and everything else. For some people, it's well, it doesn't matter, you know. But that's not loving others rightly. Right? No. Yeah, you, you know, shall it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. So, so when this, it, it does matter, but it's not. Um, it's but this other side of it. Is this the the environmentalist side of it? This is very much kind of worshiping. This is what worshiping. What has been created rather than the creator and that's why all the priorities get inverted yeah well when a company dumps uh, oil or poison or something in an area and it harms the people they're not doing it because they have a verse that says uh, be fruitful multiply and fill the earth and subdue it right. and rule over the fish of the sea the birds of the air they're, they're not doing it because of that they're doing it because they're being irresponsible, lazy, they're not loving their neighbor as the, themselves, they're doing it for a convenient way to get rid of something, that's why they're doing it. So there's, a, there's another set of ethical issues and sins that we have to address there. They're not doing it on the premise that the earth belongs to us so we can do whatever we want. Right. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you mentioned the bunker mentality that some people have, that they're not going to keep up with their belongings or whatever because everything's going to be destroyed. Well, that's that bunker mentality is basically laziness. It's laziness. It's um, uh, they're being sluggards. That's basically what's going on. It's not that they have to sugarcoat it spiritually by saying everything's going to be destroyed, so it doesn't matter. Well, if everything's going to be destroyed and it doesn't matter, then why do they feed themselves? Why do they feed themselves? Why do they exploit? resources, tax money and whatever in order to get whatever they want but not keep up their house, not keep up their yard. That's because they're lazy and they are, uh, they are selfish, they're exploitative, taking from others without working themselves, which the Bible addresses that too. It says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Go work hard. Which also relates to ownership of what we have. If we're constantly uh, leeches, sucking the blood of other people, if we're constantly doing that, it's not our own possessions that we have. We're not working and obtaining our own private possessions, which we need to do. That's a biblical concept. You shall not steal assumes that everything does not belong to us and that we have to earn whatever we need for ourselves, for ourselves and our families. And then if we seize what somebody else has, we are stealing from them. So it assumes... We have our own sphere of property and ownership. Others have that, and we should not seize others. 
wrongfully acquire it from others. And if we do so, we are stealers, we are thieves, and it's a sin against God. Everything does not belong to everybody. So communalism, in that sense, or communism, whether in small way or in a macro way in the society, in, in a nation, the Bible doesn't teach that. And in fact, the Bible teaches the very opposite of that. And the way to make sure that people are responsible with their private property, their grounds, to take care of them is to have more and more insistence on private ownership and for pastors to preach against the sin of laziness and the sin of uh, thievery. If they would teach against covetousness and thievery, things like that, then it, it would cause the people to wake up and to understand what God actually thinks of their laziness. Yes? So we're talking about, uh, it's causing me to think about something that I, I really don't know much about, but I hear it talked about today about being conservatives and liberals, and uh, it has to do with um, fracking. Like, uh, when we, there's, I guess there's fracking in Oklahoma. Um, I guess from mine, and from what I believe is a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview, is that, you know, we, subduing the earth, taking control over it, that we should take natural resources and things like that that the earth provides. And um, all I know is that I feel like, you know, we have a lot of oil industry alone, sharing it around. Um, whenever I get around, like I have a professor at uh, UCO, who's actually a professor, he also worked at St. Greg's. They were talking about how St. Greg's shut down, and they Based the whole reason it shut down on fracking because it was the fracking was causing earthquakes and earthquakes were making the building not stable and all this stuff. And I'm just wondering, as a Christian, how do we see things like you know take, taking advantage of resources, fracking, whatever? And, and I don't really even know all what all that's about. Okay, well, you're asking about fracking and how to understand it from a liberal conservative perspective. One, whenever anybody has an argument, you have to ask, what are his assumptions? What are his assumptions? What are the pieces of evidence? And what are his goals? Ask those questions. Ask, what terminology is he using? Ask who he is. On what authority, on what basis does he have a right to say anything about the issue that I should pay attention to it? If you ask these kinds of questions, definition of terms, assumptions, evidence, goals, you, you figure out that this whole thing about not using natural resources is coming from a satanic, Marxist, communist, progressive, liberal worldview that hates people, hates God and hates people, and in the name of helping people, they want to destroy people. So natural resources, whether it's coal or whether it's uh, natural gas, whatever it is, natural resources, they don't want us to use them because everybody knows, all the nations know, that it is by means of having abundance of natural resources that helps a society have prosperity. You can have wealth, you can have jobs, you can raise your family, you can have food to eat. This is how it happens. But in the name of helping the environment, they say, no, we shouldn't frack, or we shouldn't mine over here, we shouldn't 
uh, mine for coal over there. They, they say these kinds of things in the name of the environment and in the name of having a peaceful place or a pristine place for successive generations, but they don't believe in that. That is the way that the deceptive salesman presents it. They'll always say it's for the people. They'll always say it's for the children. They'll always say it's for the betterment of, of people. They'll always do that, but it's not that. Just think about where natural resources are forbidden. Just think of that. There are many nations around the world that have many natural resources, whatever it might, might be. It is prohibited in many of these countries for people to access them. And then notice the way that the mass of people, the vast majority of people, live in utter poverty. They live in utter poverty because that's intended. It's intended for them to live in utter poverty because they hate God and they hate people. And they want people to live in misery and die. So they create conflict, one group against another, old against young, young against old, parents against children, children against parents, husbands against wives, wives against husbands, black against white, white against black, on and on. This is what they do. They intentionally are God-haters and people-haters, and they're controlled by satanic ideology. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. So then you will know them by their fruits. Matthew 7, 15 to 16. 1 Samuel 24, 13. Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. Right. Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. So why should we believe in Karl Marx when he was a God-hating, self-hating, people-hating Jew who knew better but did not do better? He knew. He, he had access to the Bible, the Old Testament. That's what he was. And so in the name of the people and in the name of the children and in the name of the environment, it all sounds good, he sought to undermine the people. He hated the common man. He hated the common man. But in the name of the common man, he is undermining the common man. That's what he did in the 1800s, and that's where his ideology spread all over the world. So on that basis, I would say, they are up to no good. I, I won't believe them. Now, in reference to you said St. Gregory's University in Shawnee, that it closed down. I don't think they had money, and I don't think they had students. They hardly had any money and students, and they were just sitting there with huge property doing nothing. Why didn't they sell off some of their property, at least to maintain themselves for a while? Why didn't they do more and better to have better programs or whatever that was beneficial to the students. What do you mean that earthquakes were the reason why they had to sell the university? Really? Then what about the rest of the city of Shawnee? Why did it only impact that university's property and not any other place around Shawnee, Oklahoma? It's a scam. It's a, it's a lie to say that that's the reason why they had to sell the university. Yeah, that was the interesting part of the conversation. It was in class and... Um, they were talking about no students, no funds, no nothing, and then it just took a hard right and just bashing fracking and every all the whole industry, you know. Yeah, and that would be hard left, actually. Yeah, yeah, hard left. Everybody was up for that with me. <laughs> hard left, and uh, and that, and the, it just ended there, and it's like lost focus on all the other things. That was the 
Yes. And a lot of anger towards conservatives. Yeah, it's propaganda. It's just deceit. They just are clueless people, really. Some of them are just ignorant people. I think a lot of the youngsters are, are like that. But the people who are teaching them, they're not that way. They know what they're doing. They know what they're doing, and they are malicious. Yeah. Okay? Yes? Um, we talked about the... Uh, the animal sacrifice after the after the flood. Yes. Um, you had uh, you made a, a very strong case of the general principle from Genesis through Malachi is that that God had had talked in some kind of context for these animal sacrifices that they pointed towards something yes. something else. Yes. Uh, and that it was, you know, it was it was the heart. I mean, we went through several uh, several sections of the scripture on that. Can you um, also address uh, the idea of a clean animal uh, before the Mosaic Law? Before, uh, it's my understanding that the, it's really the Mosaic Law that kind of defined a clean and unclean, but here we have it in, in, in Genesis 8. Can you uh, address that aspect of it? A very, very clear case that the, um, that the pleasing aroma was as a result of Noah's faith, and that, that showed itself in the sacrifice. But, but what did you mean by... Uh, what, is, what does the writer mean by clean? What does he mean by clean? clean? I think he means by clean what is explicitly stated in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Those are two chapters with a list of clean and unclean animals. Clean and unclean animals. So it's assumed that we know what they are based on Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Now, I know that Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy are written after the time of Noah. I know that. So I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying when Moses tells us that he offered clean animals, he's assuming that the definition of clean is the same as what he tells us in Leviticus 11. So what would a clean animal be? Leviticus 11 Verse 1, Then the Lord spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, These are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth, whatever divides a hoof, that thus making split hoofs, and choose the cud among the animals that you may eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these among those which chew the cud, or among those which divide the hoof. The camel, for though it chews cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. Likewise, the rock badger, for though it chews cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. The rabbit also, for though it chews cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. And the pig, for though it divides the hoof, thus making a split hoof, it does not chew cud. It is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. That's an example. He proceeds to explain some more about it, and also the unclean animals. So... Like I said with the raven and the dove, the raven would have been an unclean animal. Um, for example, he mentions uh, Leviticus eleven thirteen and following. 13 and following. These, moreover, you shall detest among the birds. They are abhorrent, not to be eaten. The eagle and the vulture and the buzzard and the kite and the falcon in its kind. Every raven in its kind and the ostrich and the owl, and the seagull, and the hawk in its kind, and the little owl, and the cormorant, and the great owl, and the white owl, and the pelican, and the carrion vulture, and the stork, and the heron, 
in its kind and the hoopoe and the bat. So those would be unclean animals. So that's the distinction that Noah would have known. And he would have been taught that from his predecessors. Then uh, are you also asking with your question, not only what is clean and what's unclean, but um, what was the purpose of this distinction? Are you asking what the purpose is? I guess the, 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 core, the core of the question was the very idea of clean versus unclean. Uh, and I know it's all kind of compressed together, but it isn't until chapter 9 that we have even the ability to eat animals. Where So it seems like in this context, cleanliness is sacrificially speaking versus those who can Yes, eat. yes. Okay, in, in Genesis 8... It is cleanliness or clean animals in terms of sacrifice, not for human consumption. So that was the distinction at that point. Clean for sacrifice, not clean for consumption. And also notice in Genesis 8, 20-22, that it says that it was a burnt offering. A burnt offering, Leviticus chapter 1, a burnt offering is also known as a whole burnt offering. It's known as a whole burnt offering because the complete animal was consumed on the altar. It was burned on the altar. It was not eaten at all. So clean animals that were whole burnt offerings. Not for consumption, but for sacrifice. So then we are we're drawing the, the inference that the idea of clean presenting for sacrificial purposes principle that was taught to by God to Adam, Adam and to Cain and Abel, and we reference that in Genesis 4, that this, if you do, you, you, you can't be lifted up, if you do well, you know this, you, you, you have been taught this, there's this idea of the right kind of sacrifice or wrong kind of sacrifice, clean versus unclean, that you don't get to just do it however you want, uh, and then so we, we spend a lot of time on, on the heart behind it, but there's also a action Yes, 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 that's correct. So clean and unclean distinction for sacrifice was known to Adam, known to Abel, Cain. It was known from them all the way to Noah. That's correct. That's why God was pleased to receive Abel's sacrifice because he had the right heart, that is, he did it in faith, and he had the right actions. The right actions are a manifestation of the right faith. Notice it says in Genesis 4, 4, uh, that God had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Why does it say for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he did not? Why does it make a distinction between Abel and the offering? Because of Abel's faith and Cain's lack of faith. Cain's lack of faith manifested in the wrong offering. Cain, uh, Abel's faith manifested itself in the right offering. It's both. It's both and. And how do we know it's both and? A confirmation is in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 4. 11, 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. That one statement right there means... Abel had faith, 
Cain did not. Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain because Abel had faith. So Cain's sacrifice was a worse sacrifice, not a better one, not an equal one. Through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So his faith was manifested in that he obeyed the commandment of God to bring what God had required. Yes. And Cain's lack of faith was that he was careless and loose in what he did, just going through a ritual. It would be like Nadab and Abijah as well when they offered strange fire. Yes. To the Lord, they, they weren't careful to follow the commandment of God. They just did whatever they wanted. They just did whatever they wanted. Yes, that's an example. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus 11, because they offered the wrong kind of incense or wrong fire for the incense, they showed lack of faith. They did the wrong thing physically because they had the wrong thing spiritually on the inside. They lacked it on the inside. This is the same as what James says, James 2, 14 to 26 what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Remember, his point is, if you have true faith, it'll show in your works. Right. If it doesn't show in your works, you don't have true faith. That's what happened to Abel and Cain. Abel had true faith, therefore it showed in his works. So this distinction between the clean and unclean that Noah understood and knew um, would also be more evidence that the people before the Mosaic Law, they knew much of the content that would be in the Mosaic Law before it was written down. Yes. It, it, similar to what the Ten Commandments. Uh, so even though these distinctions weren't inscripturated until Moses and the giving of the Law at Sinai, when he wrote them down, the ideas and concepts, the principles were all known and being practiced by the patriarchs before Moses. Yes, and they were being, yes, this is an example. The clean-unclean distinction is an example of things being known but not written before the time of Moses. Until Moses came, they were known, many of the things. We don't know to what extent things were known, but we do know at least clean and unclean, and we also know Ten Commandments, that they were known before Moses' time. They were known before Moses' time, before Moses wrote them in the Law of Moses. That means from 4000 B.C. to 1500 B.C., for those 2,500 years, they knew this distinction and the purpose of the animal sacrifices, the distinction between clean and unclean and the purpose, and they also knew the Ten Commandments before the Law was written. Before it was inscripturated, it was known by direct revelation from God to Adam, and to other prophets after Adam. From Adam, Enoch was a prophet, right? Genesis 5, 21 to 24, and cross-reference that to Jude 14. And Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, so forth, okay? So he was a prophet, Enoch was, and so was Noah. And even Abraham was. They were all prophets. Now, this is an example, like you just said in your question. It's an example of them knowing more than what was written at the time. They knew more than what was written at the time. Now let's see some more examples of that in terms of explicit statements. The first one would be Genesis 18, 19. Genesis 18, 19, knowing more. 
18:19, God to Abraham says, "For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what He has spoken about him." It says there, "He may command his children." God has chosen him for the purpose that Abraham to teach his children, command his children and household after him to keep the way of the Lord. What's the way of the Lord? It's not just one thing he needs to know. It must be a, a collection of things, right? It must be a composite way of expression. The way of the Lord is not just one little thing or the one big thing, but the whole package is the way of the Lord. By doing righteousness and justice, by whose definition? By God's definition. What is righteousness and what is justice? in order for the blessing to come about. Furthermore, chapter 26, Genesis 26, 26, verses 4 and 5. 26, 4 and 5. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Charge, commandments, statutes, and laws. That sounds like more than one thing or one major thing. There are a set of commandments that Abraham obeyed. And that set of commandments is what he taught his sons, his household, and everybody he encountered. And then Abraham was a prophet Genesis 20, Genesis 20, verse 7. Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. God tells Abimelech that Abraham is a prophet. So prophets know more than what they write. That should not be a surprise to us. The passage everybody knows is John 21, 25. John 21, 25. The very last verse of the book of John teaches us this principle that we're discussing, that the prophets and the apostles, they knew more than what they wrote. They knew more than what they wrote. John 21, 25. And there are also many other things Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the, the books which would be written. They did, he, he did many other things in the presence of the disciples that would not, were, were not written, and if they were written, the world couldn't contain it all. Hyper, hyperbolically speaking, he's still saying that they knew more than what they wrote. Right. They knew more than what they wrote. Same with the prophets. So instead of seeing them then as having just a very, very thin knowledge of God and His ways and commandments, really we should see them as having a great understanding of the ways of God. Yes. And if, well, and even, you know, even with, with uh, Noah, I mean, if he understands the distinction between clean and unclean, and that he's to offer sacrifices, which are physical things, and he's a prophet, then how can he not know the spiritual that those 
sacrifice Yes. If he knows the distinction between a clean and unclean animal, how can he not know the distinction between sin and wickedness? Yes. Right? I mean, if he knows the difference between clean and unclean, how could he know, not know the difference between sin and righteousness or wickedness and righteousness? How could he not know? Well, let's look at one example. Let's just look at the example of sexual sin. Sexual sin in Genesis. Genesis 18 and 19, God is holding not Abraham accountable, not Abraham's household accountable, where the truth resides, where the word of God resides. He's holding Sodom and Gomorrah accountable outside of the family of Abraham for their sexual sin of sodomy, right? They should know. They should know. And that's the point we're making, is that the Ten Commandments were known even to people outside of Abraham's household. They were known generally. They, were, they knew it was wrong to commit sodomy. They knew that. How else do we know that it's wrong to do that? In, or sexual sin. We're looking at different sexual sins. Genesis 34. Genesis 34, verse 1. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He lay with her by force. He raped her, right? Was that right or wrong? Is it okay to rape? Of course not. No, because verse 5 says, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Defiled her. So that's making a statement that it is wrong. It's a sin. Verse 7 now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men grieved, and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing ought not to be done. Verse 13, But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit and spoke to them because he had defiled Dinah their sister. Defiled. Verse 27, Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. And finally, at the, at the end, verse 31. But they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? They knew harlotry was wrong. They knew rape was wrong. They all knew that. Furthermore, chapter 38, Genesis 38. Remember, Judah had two sons. And Tamar was to marry the youngest one after that, but that was not happening. So then Tamar takes it upon herself to dress like a harlot, a prostitute. Judah goes about, he sees her, and he fornicates with her. And then, verse 24, Genesis thirty-eight twenty-four. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. They know that it's wrong to practice harlotry and become pregnant that way. And Judah knew that and knew that she deserved to die. And then, when Judah is confronted with his belongings that she has. Verse 26, And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, 
inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. Because he knew it was wrong. He knew all of that. And he knew his sin compared to her sin. Then, Joseph. Genesis 39. Joseph, remember, he's enslaved. He becomes uh, a slave of the captain, the bodyguard, or Pharaoh in Egypt. And Potiphar's wife wants him. Verse 7. 39, 7. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put me, put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? He says. How could I do this great evil? What does he know? How does he know it? He knows it because the Ten Commandments are evident. And he expects her to know it. And expects her to know it. Right. Yes. An unbeliever. A pagan to know it. Yeah, an Egyptian pagan. Right. Well, we can't force our ideas on other people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But people say we can't force our ideas on other people. Then what about selling, mistreating somebody and selling him as a slave? Right. Isn't that sin and evil? Yeah. So that there we have theft. Right? We have covetousness because they want the money that they'll get by selling him as a slave. We also have the threat of murder, remember? They wanted to do that, but then they decided, no, let's just sell him as a slave. Right. So they knew murder was wrong, they knew theft was wrong, and they feel guilty about that later when they see Joseph in Egypt yeah. as the governor of Egypt, right? And, and w- w- did they do right or wrong? Genesis fifty twenty, And as for you, you meant evil against me. So they did wrong. They did sin, evil. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Okay? So, examples of knowing and observing the Ten Commandments in this one uh, example, especially sexual sin, before it was written by Moses. Yes, we could see other examples too. Yes. But isn't also the uh, um, righteousness of God in salvation also preached from Adam to through Noah and before uh, the law was given? The, the uh, covenant was established by God to Noah, and that doesn't that indicate that? Uh, the reality that Christ was going to come and, and uh, the way to know him would continue through him. Yes. Does this not also say, does it not also teach in Genesis that the object of their faith was Christ? Right. They could not be saved by the animal, they could not be saved by themselves, by somebody else, but it had to be salvation in Christ. Did they not know? And the answer is yes. Can we give a, a few examples of that or show a few examples of that? Yes. The first one is Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. Genesis 4, 26. It says there that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Men began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
So, Genesis 4.26, they're calling upon the name of the Lord. Ask yourself, who are they calling upon? Yeah. Who are they calling the name of the Lord? Whose name? Genesis 4.26 says, We know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob called upon the name of the Lord. Did they not? They would build an altar and call upon the name of the Lord. It says in Genesis chapter 13, verse 4, it says, And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Genesis 12.8, He built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 12.8, 13, verse 4. So these are there. These examples are there. Whose name did they call upon? Whose name did they call upon? In Joel, in Joel chapter 2, here by verse 32 it says, And whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah 8 and verse 14, what does it say about Christ there? It says, Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken, they will even be snared and caught. Further, it says in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 28, 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in him, or it, the stone, will not be disturbed, will not be put to shame. Who is the stone? He's not saying put your faith in a rock, a literal rock, right? He wouldn't be saying that. He's using rock as an image for a person. Okay? So who is this? Who is this? If you read Isaiah 53, this famous passage about the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, is Isaiah not talking about Christ? Of course he is talking about Christ. Uh, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's talking about Christ. Who else is that? Nobody but Christ. So, keeping all this in mind, go to Romans 10, 8. Romans 10, 8 to 13. Romans 10, 8 to 13. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. Now, let's just pause right there. He just quoted from Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14. Because the people were wondering, listen, you're making this harder, you're making this hard for us. And Moses is saying, no, no, I'm not making it hard for you. You have access to it. You have ready access to it. You don't have to go to heaven. You don't have to go across the sea. You don't have to go down to Sheol. You don't need to do anything like that. This word of salvation is right here. This word of faith is right here. So that's what he says. Well, what does it say? The scripture. So he's saying to the Romans, You should know this already because it was said way back then by Moses. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. What is this word? The word of faith which we are preaching. That is, what we are preaching is what Moses preached. What we are preaching. And what is it? The content of it, verse 9. That, 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, now he's proving what he just asserted about Jesus dying and rising. He's proving it. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, will not be put to shame. That's Isaiah 28, 16. Isaiah 28. Then he proves it further. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. No distinction between Jew and Greek. When did the distinction occur between Jew and Greek? Think for a moment. From Abraham onward. Abraham the Hebrew onward. Genesis 14, 13 is the first time Abraham is called Abraham or Abram the Hebrew. Genesis 14, 13. The first time. So from that time on, there became a distinction more and more, especially with Jacob and Judah, a distinction between Jew and Greek. But not before that. You can't say that Noah was a Hebrew. You can't say that Enoch was a Hebrew. You can't say Adam was a Hebrew. Then how were they saved? Well, he's telling us here, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. And then he proves it. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Taken from Joel 2, uh, 8 to 32. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So the name of the Lord to be saved. Where is that name found in this passage? Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's, he's saying that is consistent with Moses, verse 8. The word of faith which we are preaching is the same that Moses preached. Is the same thing that Isaiah preached. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And there's no distinction. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Right. Which Joel taught too. And that's a confession that is flowing out of a changed heart. Yes. a confession that comes out of his head. Yes, it's a confession of a changed heart. That's what has to happen first. In, in our human experience of conversion, that has to happen first. The Word of God and the Spirit of God together to produce a child of God. I was going to mention too that Luke 24, 44, Jesus, after his resurrection, he was saying, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the providence and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So, I mean, there were things written about him in the law of Moses. Yes. Yes. Okay. That's right. Luke 24, 44, that all things written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, which means they were written about him back there, back in the law of Moses and so forth. Okay. Well, that'll be all for today. Thank <laughs> you.